Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome everybody to an episode of the Animals to the Max podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. Okay, I want you to brace yourself. Are you ready for your mind to be blown? Seriously, okay, brace yourself. Wherever you are listening to this podcast, and whether you're listening to the show in the car, you're listening to it at night, you're at work, whatever you're doing, brace yourself. You are going to be blown away with some amazing facts about, get ready for it, hummingbirds. Seriously, you guys are going to learn so much about hummingbirds. I have been doing this show for nearly four years, and I think I learn more about hummingbirds and more about a particular animal in this show than I ever have in any other episode of the Animals to the Max podcast. And I'm being 100% serious. I just had such a good time. I love learning new facts. And, you know, I invited one of my favorite people I've had on the show. On the show today, I have John Polpeter. He is a lead naturalist for the Woodlands Nature Station, Friends of Lamb Between the Lakes. Now, John's name might sound familiar. I actually had John back on the show, back for episode 140, when we talk about red wolves and backyard wildlife. So if you have not had a chance to listen to John's previous interview, I encourage you to do so. Once again, that is episode 140, where we talk about the red wolves and what they are doing to save this critically endangered animal. But John's back on the show to talk about hummingbirds. And I actually had some, uh, I had a few listeners request that we cover hummingbirds and John was the perfect person to do so. You will learn so much about hummingbirds. And like I said, your mind is going to be blown. So stick with us for the entire interview. Now, I encourage you before we listen and learn all about hummingbirds to rate and review the show wherever you listen to the show. On iTunes, it really helps out. And when you when you write a review, it literally just tells Apple Podcasts to send it out to more people searching for animal-related content. And we love to get the podcast out there. We love to get that information out there for animal lovers and people interested in pursuing animal-related careers. So just by giving us a rating and a review, it seriously helps us out. I also encourage you to join us for the after show, the after party. Everyone's there. Seriously, go to it. To join for the after show, all you have to do is head on over to patreon.com slash animals to the max. It is uh, a place where you get exclusive access to behind the scenes after show interviews. So I've been doing after show interviews for several months now and they are Patreon only. After each show, I'll do kind of an after show and you just get exclusive access and you get more in depth with the guest. You get more of the interview. You get the whole thing. So if you are a fan of the animals, to the Max podcast, I encourage you to do so. Okay, let's get to it. Let's talk about, I'm going to say it, one of the most fascinating animals on the planet. Let's talk about hummingbirds. John, welcome to the show. Hey, Corbin, how are you doing today? I'm doing so good. I'm doing so good, man. So, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you because I just recently saw one of your uh, TikToks is this. Uh, this alligator snapping turtle uh, cutting up vegetables. That looks pretty great. I'm so happy you like that. Yeah, if we, uh, oh my goodness. Yeah, we did like a phony infomercial with one of our snapping turtles cutting up veggies and stuff. Man, I'm so happy you liked the video. It was perfect. And, you know, we have alligator snapping turtles here, but they're they're about 40 pounds. How big is yours? Uh, so it's around 60, 65 pounds. 
Oh, that is pretty pretty big animal right there. So so that, big. Did it have any troubles uh, with the butter, the the squash? No, not at all. He went right through it. He went right through it. And it's crazy to think they can even get bigger. Like 65 pounds isn't even that really big for how big they no, can get. No, You know, here at uh, Lane Between Lakes, I think the largest one uh, they pulled out of the lakes was 105 pounds. 105. And, yeah. Oh, my God. And we had a, a scientist that was radio tracking them here. And he's found usually about one large snapping turtle, alligator snapping turtle per bay here at Lambie Twin Lakes. Really? There was just one? Well, one per bay. So oh, we have oh, several different bay. kinds of bays uh-huh. all throughout the place. And it just seems like one dominant alligator snapping turtle per bay was the the ratio that he found or in the population in in our waters on the Tennessee River. On the Tennessee River. Is it a problem with people over collecting them or are they protected where you are located? So here in the, in most of the parts of the South that I'm in, uh, they're all protected, very highly protected species. Common snapping turtles are still hunted for things like turtle soup, uh, but alligator snapping turtles, a lot of people pretty much know to not touch those. I Really, though? You think that some of those people down in the bayou really know the difference between a common and an alligator? I feel like who, whoever's going out making turtle soup, I think they might be like, whatever, it's a turtle. <laughs> you're you're right. I mean, I do run into a lot of people uh, just in working uh, here at the nature center uh, where I had to kind of explain the difference between an alligator snapping turtle and a common snapping turtle. Uh, but, you know, at least the word is out that alligator snapping turtles, even if they can't tell the difference, is a protected species. I do find that more often than not uh, compared to 20 years ago. Good, good, good. Okay. And by the way, I should say, uh, John, welcome back to the show. And just to kind of thank you. Yeah. Give you an introduction for listeners who have maybe not heard your previous episode. You are a lead naturalist at the Woodlands Nature Station, Friends of Lamb Between the Lakes. And that is in the South, correct? Yeah, so we're kind of uh, – our national forest, which is Land Between Lakes National Recreation Area, has a nature center called Woodlands Nature Station, which is on the north end uh, of Land Between the Lakes. And it's a, it's a national forest that kind of straddles both Kentucky and Tennessee. It's 170,000 acres wow. of eastern deciduous forest. It's a kind of – if you look at us in the map, we're kind of between the Tennessee and the Cumberland River, but we're a long, uh, skinny peninsula which kind of makes it good for a lot of the species that we have because we have a lot of migratory species that use this as a green corridor. Okay, yes. And I am so happy that you reached out because I've had listeners reach out to me and send animal suggestions. And one of those was hummingbirds. And you reached out to me and said, hey, man, I'm, I'm digging the show, but would you like me to come on and talk about hummingbirds? And I'm like, absolutely. I am so excited to learn about an animal I don't know much about. Well, you know, the thing that uh, that I have found interesting in natural history, uh, kind of my studies, is I really love the, some of the little animals that are out there because a lot of times they have such unique adaptations and behaviors that really kind of shock me. I like I like the shock factor, you know, when when something just catches me off guard, like they do what, you know, and and hummingbirds are one of those type of species. You know, it's it's pretty common all throughout the United States and. You know, they have so many different adaptations and behaviors that really kind of are quite spectacular. You know, they're quite surprising in many cases. And there's a lot of misconceptions sometimes about hummingbirds as well that um, here at the Nature Station, we didn't tend to focus on it. I had mentioned 
that we're kind of a green corridor. So right now we're in the, the peak of hummingbird migration. And our nature center, one of the things that kind of puts it on the map is that we get close to 200 to 250 ruby-throated hummingbirds coming through our nature center per day uh, into our backyard gardens, which is only about four acres. Uh, so they're really highly concentrated to see that many. And the reason they're stopping by our nature center is because we have a lot of native gardens and we're in the middle of this national forest. It's this long interstate. And the nature center, because we have all these feeders and native flowers, is the McDonald's along that interstate. So they're stopping by picking up carbs so they can continue on the journey. Oh, that's great. Oh, I love McDonald's too. Good old carbs there. <laughs> By the way, John, I have to say something. I'm happy you said something about them migrating because I feel like when people think migrations, maybe they think of you know, uh, larger animals. I think of like the wildebeest migration. I think of maybe like geese. I think of ducks and stuff like that, you know, migrating, you know, birds. But when you think of something super tiny, like a hummingbird, I don't think a lot of people realize they migrate. Yeah. So, you know, the what, big thing that they're doing right now is they're all migrating. In fact, actually, many of the male hummingbirds have already migrated further south. They're already, they're already in Louisiana probably at this point. And what we're seeing at our feeders right now are the females of the juveniles who have to spend a little bit more time fueling up to be able to make that, that long journey across the Gulf of Mexico. So hummingbirds, you said they're found all over the United States. Yes, that's correct. Are they found so, all the way up into, up into Canada? So, so one of the things about hummingbirds that I, I think are kind of fascinating is just it's one of the most diverse bird groups that you're going to find. There's over 360 species of hummingbirds all throughout just the New World, though, just the Western oh. Hemisphere. And you're going to find them from Canada and Alaska all the way to Terra de Fuego down in Argentina. And uh, most of the hummingbirds that you're going to come across are going to be in South America, you know, around the equator, the Amazon. Uh, that's where the greatest diversity is. And once you start heading further north, uh, like when you get to, say, Costa Rica, you get about 50, 60 species there. When you get to the U.S. border, you get about 22 species. And then when you get to the U.S.-Canada border, you probably get two or three species that are found. So it's, it's strictly a Western Hemisphere, New World, America's uh, type of bird. And, you know, the, the cool thing about hummingbirds particularly is just the diversity. You know, I've heard David Attenborough say that there's really second only to the birds of paradise as far as their courtship and their coloration and their display behaviors uh, and, and the, the diff, diversity that they, they have. Sure. Um, you, know, I, um, it, you know, you think about... They, there are different kinds of ones. There's, you know, they have different kinds of names like Magnificent. There's one called a Lucifer. There's one called a Mango and Topaz. All different basic colors that you're going to get across uh, the spectrum. And um, I, I just think also in size, I mean, you're going to have something as large as a giant hummingbird that you're going to get in the Andes Mountains that is the size of a robin. Oh, American my robin. gosh. Yeah. Really? Or, or if you're not familiar with a robin, like a starling, like a European starling, they found all throughout the world. That is a huge hummingbird. And we always think of them as small. And they are small, but that is a huge bird. And then you have the smallest bird of them all uh, is the bee hummingbird found in Cuba. 
and it weighs about two grams, which, you know, two grams, what's two grams? Well, that is the weight of a dime. So put a dime in your hand, and that's the size of a bee hummingbird. Only found in Cuba. Wow. Okay, and that's the smallest smallest bird in the world would be that little hummingbird? That's the smallest bird in the world, yeah. Oh, I need need to get a photo of that. I feel like a photo of that would blow up on Instagram, like of the smallest hummingbird. (laughs) I think I think when uh, you look it up on like if you Google it, I'm doing it right it will, now. I have to. It will bring to. up a little bee hummingbird that's sitting on top of a pencil eraser. A bee hummingbird. That, I, oh my god. Yeah, and I I just thought that was the greatest photo that you could illustrate that that small bird. Oh, they're so cute. But I I need to see it on on uh, Wikipedia. It doesn't show me that. Hold on, I'm gonna go a bee hummingbird. Let me look at this. Yeah. I am just so excited to see this. Let's see images. Oh my gosh. Holy cow. It is so tiny. It's up against someone's finger. John, one thing I didn't realize is you said that the hummingbirds are only found in the New World, like North America and South America. Yeah, so, you know, the, the, you know, you can imagine just um, the, you don't you're not going to find the hummingbirds in China. You're not going to find them in Europe or Australia or Africa. Now, some of those places have species that have a similar kind of feel like the sunbirds of Africa. But the the hummingbirds is uniquely New World Americas, uh, North and South America. That is so weird. I'm just thinking, like, why another species has not evolved over there to fulfill the niche of a hummingbird. You said, what did you say? Some sunbirds in Africa do that? Or oh, yeah. So go ahead. Go ahead. Oh no, I was gonna say yeah, yeah. The sunbirds in in like Africa have a a similar deal as hummingbirds i don't think they have the long bill as hummingbirds they definitely are nectar feeders but they uh typically um are look a little bit different than hummingbirds they do have the bright colors though yeah now wouldn't hummingbirds they're super important for like pollination would it be because of like other like species like maybe there's more bats in the old world you think maybe that can do that job like a hummingbird yeah, absolutely. So, like, hummingbirds are not unique amongst pollinators, you know. Uh, they just happen to grab the niches here in the Americas. So yeah. other species in Asia, Africa, Australia probably are filled in by maybe moths, butterflies, maybe some of their, their native bee species. Of course, you know, I, I know I've seen a lot of um, programs about in, in Indonesia, they got a lot of different kinds of things from tree shrews and flying squirrels also doing some of the pollination over there. Absolutely. Okay, so you blew my mind with a couple of facts. The fact that there's a hummingbird the side of a robin is <laughs> Insane. That's a huge hummingbird, man. I'm used to that little tiny guys. Yeah. yeah, that is massive. What are some other um, unique things about the hummingbird that make them so fascinating to you? Well, you know, some of the it's incredible what the the, the abilities have. I, I think I, I can go over a couple of different things. One, I, I always like to talk about their feathers. Uh, we get a lot of questions here at the Nature Center talking about, you know, oh, I saw a blue hummingbird. I saw a brown hummingbird. I saw a black hummingbird or a green one. And really, here in the eastern United States, we only have one hummingbird species that breeds here, uh, and that is the ruby throat hummingbird. And so when people see this bird, they, they think they, they're seeing some other species, but actually what they're seeing is this particular species of bird in different lighting. Because hummingbirds, uh, like other some species of birds, have iridescent coloration. So when you think of like a, a northern cardinal, for instance, they get their coloration through chemicals, through pigments, like red and yellows and, and maybe an orange. But hummingbirds, because they got a lot of blues and greens and purples and different kinds of colors like that, they actually get it through iridescence, which 
on every single little feather that have each little part of that feather has a little bubble on it. And that what that bubble does is it helps refract light. So it makes it's like a prism and it reflects a certain wavelength of light that gives that hummingbird its color. So if you see that, that same hummingbird in the dawn or the dusk or in the middle of the day, it may be completely different colors. But it, it does the, the bubble does try to refract a certain coloration that keeps it, you know, for the majority of its time because of the lighting's the same. So then what so then what what color is the ruby throat hummingbird? Can you not give an exact color? Is it just always changing? No, so it, it it's more standard color, you know, because it's in the broad part of the light. It's a diurnal feeder. Okay. It's gonna be kind of greenish with a white belly and then it has a red gorget or throat patch for the males. Okay. Uh, but if you catch it, say in the dawn or if it's in the shade or if it's a different light source, it may come off as a completely different color and a completely different species. Wow, that is crazy. So like hummingbirds truly change color. They do. They do. It's, you know, they do have their standard color, but that you can catch them, particularly if you see the same species over and over again, and it will look different to you. A lot of people always say, well, that that's a rufous hummingbird. No, uh, it's, there are ways to tell the difference between a rufous and a, and a ruby throat, but uh, the coloration may not be always your best bet. Wow. That is so fascinating. It's mind blown. <laughs> Well, you know, you're talking about a few other things. I always also think this is kind of a misconception of hummingbirds. When you think of hummingbirds, what do you think is their primary diet? What do you think they, they are focused on eating? I would say the nectar, right? Yeah, that, and that's what most people guess because most of our experience is seeing a hummingbird and say going going to a flower in our garden. Sure. Maybe going if you have a hummingbird feeder in your in your yard, they might go to that. So they're obviously eating a lot of sugar water, a lot of nectar. But hummingbirds all around the world, one hundred percent of them, are uh, actually insectivores. What? 70- yeah, 70 to 80% of their diet is actually insects. They only use the sugar water for carbohydrates for for that energy. But if you think about it, like if if you're going to if you're going to grow, if you're going to raise kids, if you're going to lay eggs, okay. You can't really give them Pepsi and Coca-Cola. I mean, they're going to spin around and and go in circles quite a bit when you give them that much sugar, but they're not going to grow. So you need protein. And so hummingbirds actually eat quite a bit of the insects that we don't like in our yards. They eat a lot of small flying insects. So things that annoy us like mosquitoes, aphids, uh, gnats, noceums, midges, small flies. These are the kind of uh, diet items that they're going to eat on a regular basis. And they use to to be able to raise their young and to, to have families. Really? That is so, I had no idea. We're always taught they just drink the nectar. Now, I have a question though. Why don't other birds do that then? Why is it just the hummingbirds that are going to be going after like the nectar? Why are we taught that? Does that make sense? Because other birds eat insects. Don't they need some carbs too? Yeah, they may just get their carbs from maybe fruit or nuts. Oh. Uh, maybe they get it from other insects. Now, when we do set out hummingbird feeders out in our backyard here at the Nature Center, we do get quite a few species of other birds that will go to the hummingbird feeders. Mm. Um, we have downy woodpeckers and red-bellied woodpeckers that will regularly go. We actually had to set aside a whole hummingbird feeder for the bigger birds to go after. Uh, both species of Orioles, like Baltimore Orioles and Orchard Orioles, will go there. And we've even seen um, uh, things like prothonotary warblers and giant swallowtail butterflies go after 
uh, our hummingbird feeders. So they, they'll go for it. Some species will go for a quick, easy meal. They'll kind of get addicted to the sugar water and, and uh, get that, those easy carbs. Wow. Okay. I had no idea that. Hum- so hummingbirds could be good for mosquito control. And that's right. Absolutely. What? Uh, a lot, yeah. I, I think, you know, that's one of my favorite facts to tell people because obviously nobody likes some of these insects in our backyard. And, and so to be able to say, well, you know, if you attract some hummingbirds, you can maybe get rid of some of the mosquitoes and gnats and, and, and annoying insects that bother us so much. Did you say 70% of their diet is made up of insects? Yeah, seven to eighty percent. Oh my, dude, mind blown, John. See, look at this. I am so <laughs> impressed. I feel like I've been lied to my whole entire life. I well, didn't I mean, know. Go ahead. Go Sorry. Ahead. No, you go oh, ahead. I was just gonna say, you know, it's just kind of amazing. Uh, you know, um, so I, I know you're a big fan of, of pizza, right? Love pizza. You know, I've I've heard a lot of your your podcasts in the past, and you talk about going to. Uh, Detroit and Chicago and getting some great pizza and stuff like that in New York. And so I thought about this fact for you, you know, uh, because, you know, if you're, you're a hummingbird, you're eating 70 to 80% of your diet is insects, but you still got to be able to eat those carbs. You know, you're, if you're going to flap your wings, you know, 60 to 80 times per second. Wow. You know, that's, I did not misquote that. That is per second, 60 to 80 times per second. Oh my God. If you're going to do that, uh, then you got to have a completely high metabolism. So I'm going to ask you a question. If you were a human-sized hummingbird, how many pizzas would you have to eat per day to survive? Oh, my gosh. This is such a good question, and I have no idea. I, I'm just going to throw it out there. I would have to say I would have to eat 100 pizzas. Oh, you're really close. 117 pizzas. What? So, oh, Supreme my God. Pizzas. Yeah, Supreme. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. Because a hummingbird, if you're a human-sized hummingbird, basically your metabolism would ha- – you would have to consume 155,000 calories uh, what? per day. Yeah, 155,000 calories per day. If you're a, if you're a human-sized uh, hummingbird, that's right. Uh, that would also be like if you would have to drink 553 Coca-Colas you know, or you'd have to eat 130 – uh, quarter pounders, large fries, and uh, Cokes from McDonald's. I mean, that just kind of tells you the scale that these guys, these tiny little things that weigh as much as a nickel, have to do to be able to survive each day. Wow. I Mind blown, John. Mind blown. And you're getting me hungry talking about pizza. So. <laughs> I thought you might like that fact, and and uh, you know, 117. That's that's pretty bit of uh, uh, pie there. I am, and I'm writing all this down. If I okay, so I would have to have if if I was a human sized hummingbird, we'd have to have 155,000 calories. That equals out to 117 supreme pizzas, 130 quarter pounders with fries, and 553 cokes a day. Yeah, those would all be kind of equivalent to each other. That's not all together. Oh, but yeah, that's all yeah, yeah. Yeah, together. So, oh, yeah. my gosh. I mean, I'm sure Coca-Cola McDonald's would love that, but uh, <laughs> all those people. Oh, my God. That's a lot of calories for a little animal to 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 consume. Well, yeah, you know, because, you know, for a couple things, you know, when it comes to hummingbirds, you know, they they they, they flap their wings 60 to 80 times per second, you know, and even – that is normal rate. So the males, when they're doing their display or the courtship behavior, this is particularly the ruby-throated hummingbirds. Um, in spring, what they do is they'll actually fly to the forest edge. They'll go all the way as high as to the treetop, and then they'll dive bomb 
uh, in a U shape to the other side of the forest edge. And during that time period, they're actually flapping their wings 200 times per second. What? All this to, you know, to impress the females. Now, I remember when I was courting my wife that it took quite a bit to, to court her. A lot of, I had to do a lot of different kinds of things, but 200 times per second for them to impress uh, the, the, the females is, is kind of amazing. Wow. Yeah, that is so amazing. Oh, my gosh. That is – they are really fascinating birds. So they – They are. Gosh, that just blows my mind. So tell – okay, can I tell you one fact I know about a hummingbird that will blow your sure. mind? Yeah. This better be a true fact. I'm pretty sure this is true. <laughs> is it true that their tongue wraps around their eyeball? So they do have extremely long tongues that their tongue is actually uh, – you can sometimes get uh, clear – hummingbird feeders where you can actually watch them sticking their tongue in there and oh. lapping up the thing and, and their tongue at the very ends is kind of it's forked and it's kind of like a comb almost and it, it will br what? bring it back in there so it is quite long and it just like you know woodpeckers and other species it does go quite a bit in there so it, they do have one i think they they might even have the longest tongue in the bird kingdom i, I, I don't quote me on that but that it is definitely up there in the top five for sure. So. Really? And does it wrap around the eye? You know, it, it very well could be. I, I don't, I'm not familiar with that fact, but it, it, it has to go around there. I know that like with woodpeckers, it goes like way to the back of the head and everything. Like oh so my God. You got to be able to stretch that in there for sure. Yeah. And you said they have a forked tongue and it almost they have like, a forked tongue, yeah. really? And I love that idea of having a clear hummingbird feeder to see that tongue. Yeah, and so I, I've got I've actually got to witness that where it was just kind of lapping at the the sugar water that was at this feeder. Um, you know, one of the things that we do here at the nature center is that sometimes we will actually capture and band our hummingbirds. Oh. And so one of our only a few people in the country can actually capture and band hummingbirds. We're not one of them. We actually <laughs> bring people in to do that, and and they when they, they band them, they go through this process. Well, to kind of get them back, their energy levels back up, they, they'll stick their beaks in, into a feeder. And a lot of times they'll demonstrate the, the tongue going into the, the nectar. And it will, it will showcase that, uh, how that, that fork tongue works. Wow. That is so, okay. Now if we want to attract hummingbirds in our backyard, is sugar water the best thing? I mean, do you just, yeah. do, do you have to put a red dye in there or is it just the container that people use? So what we recommend is just to get the right kind of container or the hummingbird feeder to do that. You know, okay. they, hummingbirds are attracted to red and yellow, kind of okay. like McDonald's, really. You know, yeah. Um, uh, but we do not recommend putting red dye in there, and and oh. the reason is is that they're starting to find out that that red one red dye is not necessary because they're attracted to the feeder, but the red dye can actually uh, stick on their feathers and kind of rot them, and and it, and it's. Ooh. The concentration that you know red food coloring goes into a human system is is fine, but like for the small kidneys and liver that the hummingbird has, it's just not good for them. So we recommend not including that. Just do a four to one ratio of water to sugar to be able to attract hummingbirds to your backyard. A full uh, a four to one. Oh, that's interesting. And no red dye because that stuff can't be good for us anyway. So it can't be no, good for a little guy for a little hummingbird. Yeah, and, you know, you know, if you come to our, our backyard at the nature center, you're going to see it's not necessary. We have 200 to 250 hummingbirds a day and they're coming to clear water. Uh, oh, really? Get, what, you don't you don't yeah. need a you don't need a red colored container or yellow, yellow colored container. So our, our 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 feeders do have a red bottom on them that attracts them to it. Uh, okay. But the, the red 
the red uh, food color is not necessary. Okay. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. Tell me, John, about like the life cycle of a hummingbird. Like how, how long do these little guys live? I would guess, let me just put this out there because they're smaller. I would think that they don't have a very long lifespan. So they, they don't have a very long lifespan, but it's longer than I think some people will, will guess. You know, the actual record for a hummingbird is 12 years, oh. uh, which surprisingly for me, you know, um, I told you that we kind of do hummingbird banding each year. Mm-hmm. And we've been doing that for about 25 years. And uh-huh. we had a female that we captured four times. And on our fourth time, this is in 2019, right before COVID hit, we didn't do it during the COVID year. Um, we, uh, she was at six, so they, you know, six is a pretty old hummingbird, but it's not unusual for them to get to that age. Six years old. And for someone listening, why would you want to band a hummingbird? So one of the things that they're, they're just trying to find out is where these hummingbirds are going, uh, how successful they are as they migrate. Uh, so we don't know a lot, believe it or not, about where hummingbirds winter, and what the migratory pathways are. So the idea is, is that if we start finding out where these important migration spot spots are, and we know how successful they are, then we can protect those areas. So one of the things that we're suspicious of, we haven't really been able to confirm, but we suspect that a lot of the hummingbirds that we have in our area are flying across the Gulf of Mexico and wintering in the western portion of Costa Rica. And so there's been a number of different ornithologists trying to track where the ruby throats from the eastern United States are, are wintering. And that way that when we, we talk to the governments of, of Central America, then we could say, you know, if we want to protect hummingbirds, we need to protect this particular patch of forest that is on the western coast of Costa Rica, that kind of thing. Uh, we also can tell, uh, like I said, the lifespan and then the general health of them by because it's a cooperative effort so all these hummingbird banders all throughout the country even the ones in idaho are putting all those numbers into a national banding laboratory and other scientists can use that data to be able to come up to conclusions about hummingbird biology hummingbird behavior and natural history wow okay and how far do miles wise do hummingbirds migrate well so like we through Ruby thread hummingbirds are up into southern Canada. Okay. Uh, from here at Land Between Lakes, it, it's they. Well, I'll tell you, they go all the way to the Texas coast. Okay. And at the Texas coast, they fly across the Gulf of Mexico about wow. 600 miles. Wow. And here's here's the crazy thing: they do it a nonstop flight, no meal service provided, 18 hours. They're flying at 50 miles an hour. Oh my God! It sounds like a, a Southwest flight. No meals, in, no meals included. Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> and, and and they don't even stop. They don't. I mean, they might stop on a fishing boat or an oil rig out there, but for the most part, they just kind of go. They're all for nothing. They try to go and hit that Yucatan Peninsula, and from the Yucatan, they spread all the way down to Panama. Now, the oh. Rufus hummingbird, which is found in the western parts of the country, particularly the Pacific Coast and Alaska, they actually have the longest migration. They're going from Alaska down to southern Mexico, which is about 2,000 miles one way. Oh, my goodness. And I never even think about hummingbirds flying over the ocean. That's the craziest thing. Do they, do, do, do they all fly together? Are they like a solitary are they in a flock (laughs) or like what you know so uh that's a great question actually what they're finding that they they actually run in loose aggregation so they don't fly in flocks they may actually just fly singly or in other groups of birds um Uh so there's no 
you know, like you see a flock of geese, they're all kind of going together. That's not really what the hummingbirds do. They just kind of go for it across the Gulf of Mexico, and hopefully they make it to the other side. It would be rough to be a hummingbird. I'm imagining they have a bunch of predators. Yeah, so, um, you know, what in the United States, of course, down in, in the tropics, God, about everything is, is deadly to them down there. But here in the breeding habitat, whether it's the mountain west or in the eastern forest, uh, what do you think would be a few species that they might go after a hummingbird? Uh, well, I'll tell you what. I know a praying mantis can take one down. That's... Oh, okay. Yeah, that's the most shocking one I thought. So... Yeah, that's horrifying. I don't think I've seen that <laughs> video. I don't think I want to, but that's crazy. A praying mantis can take them down. I would say uh, I would say even like smaller, maybe falcons, hawks. Yeah, so you're going to get kestrels, kestrels, and hawks. Yep. Uh, bullfrogs. Oh, bullfrogs. I've even seen a largemouth bass try to go for one before. Really? Uh, yeah, the number one probably for ground, you know, hummingbirds that are flying around your garden is going to be house cats, of course. Uh, oh. But those those praying mantises, you know, I do get a lot of calls or pictures of people showing me what they think is kind of neat as a, a large Chinese introduced mantid that's sitting on their hummingbird feeder. And I'm like, oh, knock that guy off the feeder. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Because he's after your hummingbirds, and uh, he's not going to be able to get a, a healthy, full-grown uh, adult male or female, or even a, a vigorous young person, young hummingbird. But they will go after like the weak, the old, the injured, uh, kind of like you know a cougar would after a, a deer. You know that's just part of it. It's just that the fact that they're introduced it's usually the introduced invasive chinese praying mantises that tend to be the bigger problem because they're so much bigger um than some of the others yeah and i'm happy you mentioned cats cats are the most destructive invasive animals on the planet they kill what is it the stat is over a billion animals a year it's staggering how much feral cats and feral and domestic i mean you know yeah, so you know, uh, obviously, you know, they did some some famous studies on on house cats uh, in Georgia and found that they do a lot of harm to, especially particularly small herps like reptiles, yeah. uh, you know, lizards and, and frogs and and uh, but you know, their house cats are adapted to catching birds and small mammals and reptiles, and a hummingbird is not going to be an obstacle. It's going to be a play toy for them. They will get a hummingbird, no problem. If you see a house cat next to your feeder, you probably want to try to shy it away from that because it will eventually get one of your hummingbirds. Yeah, and it's so hard to tell people to keep their hats their their hats. It's so hard to tell people <laughs> to keep their cats in, but honestly, try to. They are the most destructive animals out like for the environment i don't know i just because they they kill so many native species and, and i think a lot of people have the notion of like well it's just a bird who cares but when you add it up it really affects the you know it it, it affects bird populations and i'm so happy we used to have two cats on our property like wild cats we adopted and back in the day we would never have birds around because they affected everything, the nesting. And I hate to say it, I'm so happy those cats are gone because now our bird population is flourishing. No, it, it, they do have an impact. I mean, that's their job. Their job in nature is to eat small animals. And they're going to go where it's the easiest. And if you're attracting birds through feeders, if you're attracting birds through uh, bird seed or uh, bird houses, they're going to go to where it's easiest. Now, not all cats are very good at catching. Um, you know, I got I know I've seen a couple cats that were a little too heavy to be able to catch anything. But 
uh, they there definitely are some good predators out there, and they're and they're built for it. I mean, they have all the senses, the reflexes, the balance to be able to be a very efficient predator. Yeah. So folks, keep your cats inside, and also that way you don't have to worry about your cats running away or being hit by a car. You can keep them safe. Well, you know, um, the American Birding Association has a statistic out there that a cat that is kept indoors has an average lifespan of 17 years. A cat that's kept outside is have an average lifespan of two years. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, I should yeah. give that stat to uh, some people I know. <laughs> well, I think it's the ABA that you can get that. The, they have a whole brochure on keeping cats indoors. Yes. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about their little their life cycle. I mean, how little are hummingbird eggs? I could imagine they're like the tiniest little things. So you know, here in Kentucky, we get uh, about. The female uh, hummingbird will have three clutches. Okay. Uh, we, we have a long enough summer that we can actually can actually have three clutches. And in each clutch, she'll probably lay about two to three eggs. And they're about the size of a small jelly bean or a kernel of corn. <laughs> and she raises them completely by herself. She is She's a single mother. Dad does not have anything to do with it. He's off defending his territory. Really? And yeah, and she, she will build a nest on from 10 to... 75 feet up in a tree and usually she likes to build a nest at the end of branches um, where larger predators like snakes and cats and squirrels can't get them and and you know the thing that she does is she'll she'll sit up there and she'll gather things like lichen and plant down and cottonwood seeds and she'll lay down a couple layers and then the cool thing about she'll do is she'll go out and she'll go grab spider web and build the rest of the nest with spider up to kind of give it that strength and elasticity that she needs to be at the edge of that branch. I mean, right now, Kentucky's getting a little bit of this Hurricane Ida right now. And so those those branches are, are blowing around. Imagine a little hummingbird on a nest on there. So she's got to be able to, to make sure cure that nest to that branch. And spider webs is the best thing that she can use it for. And um, those little hummingbirds will be, you know, she'll incubate them for about, two weeks and then three weeks of incubation then they'll fledge out so about 42 days altogether that that ruby-throated female will will raise that that clutch of babies and uh, you know we're talking about predators her number one predator for those babies is actually a blue jay because it's the only species of bird or maybe a crow that can can get on that branch and be able to to eat her eggs or her babies oh my gosh and i okay so they put them at the the nest at the very end of a branch where it's too heavy for a lot of other animals to go minus the blue jay and they'll use spider webs i had no idea yeah i i think that's you know and that way when the, those babies you know they when they hatch out they're just little tiny things and then they'll expand the, the nest because it has that that spider web can actually expand when they grow but it will still be strong enough to hold those babies in there without them flying out. When do the babies fledge? So it takes about 42 days to 45 days for them to kind of fledge out. So uh, you'll start seeing them coming to the feeders. You know, after uh, usually around Memorial Day, we'll start seeing our first uh, batch of baby hummingbirds. And you can always kind of tell them apart from the adults because they're, they're a little bit chubbier. They usually have a lot of down around their neck. Uh, and they always look like they're they're completely lost to the world. They're just kind of like, whoa, this is this is pretty pretty big out here. So um, you, we've got some very cute videos of walking up to these hummingbirds, and they're just kind of looking at us like, what are you? And uh, it's it's very cute. 
Yeah, I, I could imagine. So when are they out on their own, these hummingbirds? It doesn't it really after they, they fledge um, after a few days of mom, maybe now, some of them may fledge a little bit early and mom will still take care of them. still feed them insects, maybe uh, give them uh, some, some different kinds of supplementary meals once they're out on their own. Uh, but pretty much after a week or two, they're they're pretty much visiting our feeders. And one of the ways to tell them apart from the males, so males have the bright red gorge at the adult males, uh, the red chin patch. Well, juvenile males, because the male is so aggressive, because he is, defends his territory against even larger birds, the juvenile males will look just like mom. They try to pass oh. for a female hummingbird. Female hummingbirds do not have the red patch. Mm -hmm. They have just a white belly. And then one of the distinctive marks on a ruby throat is that females will have white little dots on her tail. Well, the juvenile females and the juvenile males also have those white dots so that dad confuses them with the female and doesn't bother them as much. So they are able to go feed at the flowers, feed at the hummingbird feeder, uh, it, you know, without being harassed by the male. Is that why when sometimes if you ever see a few hummingbirds together and you see them chasing each other, that's not like a friendly thing. That's some territorial stuff going on. The males are extremely territorial. They they hold a territory about a quarter of an acre. <laughs> which is which is big for like a little hummingbird. <laughs> a quarter yeah. of an acre? Oh my god, so crazy. And and they'll defend I mean they'll they'll die you know, they'll dive bomb you, they'll dive bomb red tail hawks, they'll dive bomb what? other birds. I mean, yeah, they they are fearless little things. You know, um so they they will they will take on a lot of things. They may not win, but they they will try. And you know, one of the things I always think is funny is they have this behavior, especially a male, when he wants to kind of confront you, he will it's kind of what I call the sign of the cross. He'll go up you know, it could go up above your head, down below your chin, and then to the side, to the left and the right. So it's almost like he's making the sign of the cross. But what that is, it's it's a behavior that's saying, you know, you know, I can take you. I can take you. Watch out. This is my territory. Wow. Stay off my yard. I never thought they were territorial. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, males are extremely territorial, except during the fall when they're just really concerned about building up their fat layers for migration. You know, they got to go from three grams of weight to about seven grams of weight. So double their weight. And one of the things that we find when we're banding them is that you, when we have them in hand, you can flip them over on their back and uh, they have a little patch on their belly. That's kind of clear skin. And you can actually see the, the globs of flat fat on them. And that's how the scientists tell that they are able to be, that they're going to make it across the Gulf of Mexico is if they have these large uh, groupings of fat on their bellies. Okay. Oh my God. That's so fascinating. So John, I have captured many hummingbirds that have gotten, unfortunately loose in our garage or kind of stuck, I should say in our garage. And yes. do you have any tips? Because I know when I catch them, they're extremely stressed because they can't get through the window. And, um, you know, and anyway, luckily we haven't had any casualties where one has died. I've always usually been able to catch them and then release them. But any pointers, though? Because if you're catching them to band them, I'm sure stress is probably a big concern because they're just little guys. Yeah, so if you are able to get your hands on them, like say you netted one uh -huh. uh, that was in your garage, you could actually take the little hummingbird and take his beak and stick it in the feeder uh, 
he may be a little bit stunned, but they actually will drink quite readily. Really? And once they kinda, yeah. They, they, once you set them on the perch itself, so they're on the, on the perch and they got their beak in there. You just give it a little bit of time, checking in on it every so often, and it will eventually buzz off. Now, another thing that you could do to, if you do get a hummingbird stuck in your garage, one of the things that's recommended is turn out all the lights that you can, maybe okay. even block, block the, the window, uh, from any light and then put a hummingbird feeder on the ground just outside the door oh so so like the, you got the big garage door just underneath that door put on the ground the hummingbird feeder and what that will do is it'll attract him to go down and then when he goes he swoops back up he'll swoop back outside oh and, and that's one one of the easier ways to get a hummingbird to to go back out of a garage or a porch or any of those things okay so open your garage just a little bit for him to go out Keep it well, you can a, you can open the garage the entire way. It's just what you do is you just put the the feeder at the bottom underneath the door, oh. so that he'll be attracted to go to the hummingbird feeder. He'll go down, and as he swoops back up, he may swoop back onto the outside. Oh, okay, that's a good yeah. Because we've always caught him with the nets, um, and which which does work, but it can it can uh, be difficult to get because they're fast and they're going to avoid oh you, and they're so and they fast. might get get more stress. So one of the things that we try to encourage people to do is. You know, obviously, if you net them to feed them uh, by by hand, uh, which you can also, you know, hold them and then give it like a spoonful of sugar water and they can watch them lap it up uh, and they'll zoom off from your hand at that point. They're actually kind of hardy little birds. You know, the thousands and thousands of hummingbirds that we've banded over the, the 25 years that we've been doing it, um, we've I think we've only lost one. Really? Uh, yeah. So um We've had they're they're particularly a hardy little species, even though they're as small as they are. Wow! Wow! Okay, and you do a celebration at the Woodlands Nature Station for hummingbirds, don't you? Have a hummingbird month? Yeah. So we're, today is actually the last day of hummingbird. Oh month. shoot! <laughs> <laughs> we're a little late. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had a very successful hummingbird month, you know, because okay. we're at the peak of hummingbird month. Is, uh, the peak of the migration is during the month of August. Now we're going to have hummingbirds all the way to October, mm-hmm. um, but we do a number of different programs all throughout the month of August. You know, at the beginning as when we have our hummingbird festival where we actually do some of the hummingbird banding and we have different – we u- utilize the hummingbird to kind of teach people about – other species that are in the backyard. So like a lot of times, you know, at our hummingbird fest, we'll focus on hummingbirds, but we'll talk about native plants and we'll talk about native bees and we'll do garden unhuggables, which gives people that normally wouldn't have a chance to, to hug a snake or to touch a snake (laughs) or, you know, a frog or, you know, see a salamander or maybe a a garden spider, something that they normally want to appreciate something reason why they should appreciate them. Uh, you know, we talk about bluebirds and bats and, and so we utilize the hummingbirds that, that everybody loves to be able to teach a lot more about people's backyard and their role in conservation. That's amazing, John. Well, listen, we are nearing the end of the interview. Will you join me for the after show? Yeah, absolutely. Sure okay. No problem. Perfect. Now for listeners, if you want to join us for the after show, all you have to do is head on over to patreon.com slash animals to the max. And John, during the after show, I want to ask you 
your favorite hummingbird fact. So audience, if you want to hear that, make sure to join us for Patreon only. But before we get to that, John, where can people find you if they want to learn more about Woodlands Nature Station, Friends of the Land Between the Lakes? My God, that's a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you could go to uh, our Facebook page, which is Woodlands Nature Station, uh, and and you'll see the the bobcat symbol on there. And or you can go to www.landbetweenlakes.us and go to the Nature Station page there to find out more of the kind of things that we do there. That's awesome. All right, let's head on over to the after show. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. Also, if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. It really helps me out. As always, if you have any guest suggestions, if you want to email me personally, head on over to CorbinMaxi.com. And if you haven't already, check out our social channels. You can follow me at CorbinMaxi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll talk to you next time.